Hello friends and welcome to The Canopy. This is a podcast brought to you by the Women's Ministry of Life Church Wisconsin. We are excited that you are joining us today. We are getting ready to listen to the message from May 14th that Tammy did, myself, did for Mother's Day. The title of the message is Become What You Believe, and we believe that this message is going to be used by the Holy Spirit to empower you and to lift you up. So grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9, and we hope that you enjoy today's podcast. you about a message that God laid on my heart back in March, and It's going to be for anyone that finds themselves walking around a Jericho. Is anyone in the house walking around a Jericho today? What is a Jericho? A Jericho is an obstacle. It is a trial. It is a situation. It is a circumstance that you are in today that you may have created or you may have just found yourself in beyond your control. I found myself in a Jericho a couple of years ago, one that I did not create, but yet I am in it. And I am walking steadily around my Jericho, waiting, believing, trusting, knowing that God is going to show up, that God is going to pull through. And on most days, I am pretty set. I am pretty focused. I am pretty upbeat full of joy, ready to take on this Jericho. I have my full suit of armor on found in Ephesians 6, and I have my sword with me, the word, and I am just tackling it. And I tackle it by getting on my treadmill. That's how I walk around my treadmill, walk around my Jericho is on my treadmill. Or when it's nice outside, I'll be in my neighborhood walking and praying, walking and praying, walking and praying, believing and knowing that he's going to show up that he's going to take care of this Jericho. But it was back in March when I found myself down in my basement on my tread walking when the enemy came in like a flood to discourage me, to frustrate me, to make me mad. And he thought I was going to get mad just at God, but I got mad at him too. And he's, I, I kind of think of the enemy when he, when he comes in like that, like a, pesky mosquito you know and they're just in your ear and they're just and you can't get rid of them and you're shooing them away but they're there and he's whispering thoughts into your head and he's whispering confusion and he's whispering doubts and he's whispering fear it's never going to change it's always going to be this way why don't you give up when are you going to stop when are you going to let it go when are you just going to accept it for what it is and I got mad And I was just furious. I was furious at the enemy, the devil, and I was furious and mad at God. And I would beat my fist on my treadmill rails and I would call out to him, when is it going to change? What have I done to deserve this? What are you doing about this? And before you think, well, I bet she wasn't in her word. I bet she wasn't doing her daily discipleship. I bet she wasn't in flourish. I bet she wasn't writing out her scriptures that she tells us to in 70 palms all the time to do. 
No, I was, because I am so competitive with myself, I have to finish the Bible every year. You know what I'm saying? So I was on track. I'm in the Word. I'm writing it. I'm studying it. I'm praying faithfully. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get attacked. That doesn't mean he's not going to come in and whisper in your ear thoughts that you know aren't true, but he's still trying to get you to believe them. And I was in the Word, and this went on for a couple of weeks. I was just mad. Friend, she called it out. She saw it, and she held me accountable. Don't let this get the better of you. Don't let this take root. Are you okay today? Where are you at? What's going on? Because she knew, and so did I, that if this lingered, if I let this continue to go on unchecked, that the root of bitterness, the root of anger, the root of frustration would take hold in my life and fruit would not be produced. We've all seen Christ followers that have the root of bitterness, that have the root of anger in their lives and they're not producing fruit. And she didn't want that for me and I didn't want that for me. But it was because I was in the word, it's because I was faithfully in his word day in and day out and I was on that treadmill and I'm talking to God and I'm working it out and I'm spending time with the Trinity that his word became what I needed in that moment. And I was in the book of Matthew and we're gonna talk about the chapter today that became a beacon of hope for me. It was like my faith became alive again because I saw in this chapter five miracles that produced strength and faith in me again because the people that were asking for these miracles had such levels of faith that it just overwhelmed me and it brought me back to where I needed to be. So the title of my message today is Become What You Believe. And I'm taking that from Matthew 9, verse 29. In the message translation, we see one of the miracles in this chapter are two blind men. And they are following Jesus to a house that he is going to. And they're crying out to him all the way to the house. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And when Jesus finally gets to the house, he turns around and he looks at them and he says, do you truly believe that I can heal you? And they said, yes, yes, master, we do. And he looks at them and he says, become what you believe. And in that nanosecond, in that instant, their sight was restored. Because you see, it was very important what they believed. Because if they didn't have the faith to believe that Jesus was able to heal them, they not, would not have been able to receive their sight. What I believe and what you believe about ourselves and about God is extremely important. What we decide to believe about faith is important. As we're going to see in chapter 9, there are varying levels of faith shown in these five miracles. You are going to have some people that may not have had any faith at all, but the people that carried them to Jesus had all the faith in the world. 
And then some had so much faith they were willing to crawl on their hands and their knees down a dusty path to get to Jesus. What's your level of faith? This chapter caused me to ask that of myself. Do I have faith like these people? And what exactly does that kind of faith look like? What is faith? I'm in a life group that I do not lead. Thank you, Jesus. And it meets on Thursday mornings here at the Germantown campus. It's called Thoughts on Thursdays. And two great women, Liz Doberstein from the Brookville campus, and Amanda Coggins from Germantown, they lead it. And we go through a book every semester. And these books are typically always power-packed, faith-building, encouraging books. And the one that we did this last semester in the spring just so happened to be the book that I needed as well when I was going through my moment in March. And I want to read to you a quote of what Rob Morgan calls faith, what he describes as faith in the book, The Strength You Need. He says, promises made by an unchangeable God inscribed in his word, purchased by the blood and ratified by the resurrection of Jesus. That's the kind of faith that we're going to see the people in Matthew 9 have today. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles or scroll on your tablet or your phone to the book of Matthew, I'm going to be reading from the NIV and let's read the first eight verses of Matthew. My first point is, it matters who you do life with. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know the son of man has authority to forget on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. We have a story here of four men who have incredible faith. We don't know if this was their brother. We don't know if this was a friend, an uncle, a cousin, a man that used to be a coworker of theirs. We don't know the relationship, but I'm gonna call them friends. And these four friends saw something in Jesus. Either they had seen him perform a miracle, they had heard of him performing a miracle, but they knew they had to get their friend to Jesus. And they were willing to take him through the town or around the corner. We don't know the distance they had to go to carry their friend and his mat to the house of where Jesus was. But Mark 2 tells us that when they get to the house, they see that it is full of people. There's people everywhere, all inside the house, all around the house. 
and they don't get discouraged. They don't say, well, we came all this way for nothing. I guess we can turn around and go back. Let's, let's pick up a friend and go. No, they came full of faith, knowing that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, he would heal him. So they devised a plan. Okay, let's huddle. Let's get together. Let's figure this out. Okay, you go get a saw. You go get some rope. We're going to get cut a hole in that roof, and we're going to lower our friend down. They were determined. They knew that they had to get their friend to Jesus. This, something else that I want to point out to you is that this they brought their friend on his mat. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but this mat was everything to the paralyzed man. It was his home. It was where he begged. It was where he ate. It was where he slept. It was, well, to, to put it as gently as I can, it's where he used the restroom. This mat had to stink. And this man had to stink. But yet, his friends were willing to carry him when he stunk. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends in your life that are willing to carry you in your mat when you stink, when you are at your lowest, when you are at your weakest? Do you have people around you that will carry you to Jesus? And then the flip question is, are you that kind of friend? Are you that person that will pick up your friend, pick up your family member and carry them to Jesus when they're at their lowest and their weakest? In my opinion, friendship has kind of taken a, a, a weird rap. It's kind of gotten different lately. It's become this kind of thing for just girls. Friendship's a girly thing. It's girls night out. It's G&O. We're going to go and have dinner. We're going to go watch a movie. We're going to go paint pottery or whatever, right? And guys think that it's kind of this thing for the week, and that kind of surprises me. It's, it's, it's been interesting to watch the turn of how friendship has become. And I say friendship isn't for the weak and it's not a girly thing. It's actually modeled to us in the word by men. We see friendship modeled to us by David and Jonathan, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Barnabas, and the ultimate friend group, the the greatest friend group that we could ever think to aspire to is that of Jesus and his disciples. He had 12 men that he chose to do life and ministry with. They all didn't get along. They weren't always peaches and cream. This was a ragtail group of guys. And in that group, there were three that were super close to Jesus. And then he had his brother from another mother, his super close friend, and they did life together. Now, I know some of you are out there going, yeah, but he also had that guy that was a double-crossing, backstabbing traitor. That's why I don't do friendship. That's why I don't let myself go there. And my challenge to you today is this. If Jesus knew Judas before he was even formed in his mother's womb and knew that he was going to betray him, but yet he still 
spent time with him. He still spoke into his life. He still taught him. He still washed his feet. And if Jesus can do that, so can you and I. We can open ourselves up to friendship, to relationship. The last thing I want to point out to you today from this little portion is that Jesus cares more for the external illness than he does anything else. Jesus cares for this man's sin. He cares about his soul. The external, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's problematic, but his soul, the internal illness, that's what's the most important to Jesus. He sees the faith of the four friends but he calls out the deeper issue and that's of the paralyzed man's sin. Who do you have in your life today that is calling out sin? That's calling you up to a better, higher standard of living. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. It matters who you do life with. It matters who your faith circle and community is. Do you let your friends slide on sin or do you call them up? I'm not talking about us replacing the work of the Holy Spirit and we're not their savior, we're not Jesus, but I am talking about accountability. Are you open to allowing your friends be accountable to you and are you accountable to your friends? It's walking out the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. It's loving, patient, and kind to say, I'm going to take you to the foot of the cross. It's not loving, and it's not patient, and it's not kind to say, I'm going to allow you to sit and foster in your sin. I'm going to allow you to, to wallow in your sin. I'm not going to allow you to stay in this place. God's called you to more than that. Yeah, they may reject you. Yeah, they may push you off to the side. They may discount you but you have done what a friend is supposed to do. We need to see more accountability. The second miracle I want to talk to you about in Matthew 9 is actually two miracles in one story. And this miracle I have titled, Jesus Sees You and Knows You. We're going to read verses 18 through 26. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and place your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all the region. 
These next two miracles come with unbelievable circumstances. We have a dead 12-year-old girl and a woman who has been bleeding, has been sick for 12 years. Both of them would be considered highly unclean, and Jesus would not want to have any contact with them. Uh, a, a, a Jewish leader would not want to be in proximity to these two situations. But that did not stop Jesus. He literally gets up and he goes. He's willing to go. He wants to go. The death of the 12-year-old girl causes quite a stir, as you can imagine. Jesus going, saying that he's going to see this girl and perhaps perform a miracle, has not been seen since Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. There has been no recording of anyone raising anyone from the dead. So you can imagine words spread like wildfire. Oh, my word. Jesus says he's going to be able to touch this girl. He's going over to so-and-so's house because he's going to heal this girl from the dead. He's going to raise her from the dead. You've got to come. You've got to come. You've got to come. And this crowd starts to form. This mob starts to form, which actually is the way that the woman with the issue of blood is able to make her way to Jesus. If there had not been a crowd, she would not have been able to come in because see, she's an outcast. She's not allowed in. She's not allowed into the city. She has to stay on the outskirts of town. This was her shot. This was her moment to be able to crawl her way to Jesus. We see a girl from a well-known synagogue leader's home, and we have a woman of unknown identity, and both of them are in desperate need of Jesus. Jesus touches the girl, and the woman touches Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are famous, if you are wealthy, if you come from a family that is deemed important, or if you are unknown to the world and seemingly forgotten and all alone. No matter what, Jesus sees you, and he knows you today. The girl's father comes and falls at the feet of Jesus, begging, pleading, and the woman crawled on her hands and knees, knowing that a touch, all she had to do was just touch Jesus and she would be made whole. Both of them come to the absolute end of themselves and find themselves at the feet of Jesus. Two of my favorite verses from chapter nine are 21 and 22. For she kept saying to herself, if I could only touch his prayer shawl, I would be healed. Then Jesus turned around and looked at her and said, my daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has healed you. And instantly she was healed. Remember, there's a mob, a large crowd all around Jesus. And they're going to the synagogue leader's house. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops it all, says, stop, stop, stop. Someone has touched me. I have felt healing power leave me. Who touched me? He stopped everything to look for this woman who was an outcast, who had not been seen in 12 years and he stops 
He looks for her, he finds her, and he sees her. And what he says to her in that moment is such a beautiful experience. He says, my daughter, be encouraged. Nowhere else in the four gospels does Jesus call any other woman my daughter. But he does this woman because he sees her. He knows her. Jesus has not forgotten you today. He has not left you and he has not forsaken you. He knows exactly where you are. He sees the battle that you are in. He sees the Jericho that you are walking around today. He knows you and he sees you. I have a shameless plug for Israel right now. If you come with Aaron and I in November, we'll go to a place where they believe that this happened. And there is a museum there now that has this huge wall mural depicting this scene. And it is taken from the vantage point of the woman crawling on her hands and knees. And it shows the feet of the crowd and the woman reaching out to touch just the thread on the hem of his garment. It is a beautiful scene, and I would love for you to come with me to see it. Shameless plug, shameless plug. The last point I have in the last two miracles that we're going to talk about is this. Identity matters. Identity matters. We're going to read verses 27 through 34. And as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this but they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. We start out this section of scripture with these two blind men calling out, Son of David, Son of David, which is the true identity of who Jesus is. And then we close this portion of scripture with religious leaders calling out the false identity of Jesus, which begs me to ask, who do you believe Jesus is today? Who do you believe you are? Do you question who you are? Do you question what your purpose is? You see, identity is where everything about us begins and is rooted from. Without identity, we flounder. Without identity, we are lost. Without identity, we have nothing grounding us or keeping us firmly rooted and established in who we are in Christ. 
The fact is we have three people living in each of us. The one that we think that we are, the one other people think that we are, and the one that God knows that we are because he's the one who created us. Jesus knew whose he was and what his purpose was. And he walked in that power and that authority and that freedom. But I want you to know, make no mistake, the enemy, Satan himself, is going after you and is going after me. Why? Because he went after Jesus on identity. He challenged Jesus on who he was. If the enemy is going to attack Jesus on his identity, how much more is he going to attack your kids? How much more is he going to attack your spouse? How do we counterattack this evil on identity that the enemy is so targeting? He's targeting sexual orientation. He's, he's targeting gender confusion. He is targeting purpose. He's targeting your calling. The same way Jesus attacked the enemy when he spoke lies into his ear. We are given our one weapon of defense, and that's the word of God. We see Jesus when he's walking in the wilderness, and he's on his 40-day fast, and he's preparing himself for his ministry. Who's with him? The enemy. The enemy's there speaking constant lies about who he is, about who Jesus is. And how does Jesus come back to him? With the word. He keeps answering the enemy with the word. Nope, that's not true. This is what the word says. Nope, that's a lie. This is what the word says. Nope, you're wrong. This is what the word says. We have to be in the word. We have to know the word. The battle for identity is so so strong. The enemy is not going to let up. He's going to keep pushing and pushing and stirring up confusion and stirring up chaos. After all, that is Satan's sole purpose is to destroy your purpose. If you are struggling with your God-given identity today, I challenge you, open up the book of Ephesians in the New Testament and read that. In the first chapter Paul tells us who we are in Christ. You're blessed. You're chosen. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You are loved. Make a list of them. Keep it on repeat. Because the enemy of your soul and my soul, Satan, wants us to believe that we hold zero value, that we are worthless, that we're an accident, that we're an inconvenience and that we're unlovable. But that, my friend, is such a lie from the pit of hell. We are created to be image bearers, Genesis 1.26 tells us. We are of kingdom value. We reflect our creator in this world that we live. The two blind men would not leave Jesus alone. They kept following him all the way to this house. Again, probably led by friends, right? But this time it's not the faith of the friends that Jesus calls out, but it's the faith of the two that are blind that gets his attention. And he says the most important question, do you believe I have the power? And they say, yes, yes, we do. 
And them saying that is the key to Jesus releasing the healing power in their life. Because he responds with, become what you believe. Identity matters. What you believe about yourself matters. What you believe about Jesus is so very important. It shapes how you will live out your purpose and how and what you were called to do. I close with this. Who you have in your faith community matters. Choose wisely. And are you living life knowing that Jesus sees you and he knows you, even though it feels like no one else does? And do you have faith to agree with what Jesus sees in you and knows about you? Our faith is what will draw the lost lonely world to Jesus. The two blind men after receiving their healing could not contain the joy that was inside of them because of what Jesus had given them. Their lives overflowed out into the world and the news of his greatness spread. Let us be people of intense faith that radiate the goodness of Christ to our world. I have a challenge for the women today in the house. There is a message that I received on Monday from a dear friend of mine in Missouri, and she sent this link to a sermon done by Jensen Franklin. He is a pastor in Georgia, and it is called Rachel's Army. And I challenge the women today to go to JensenFranklin.org and watch the message when you type in Rachel's Army. This is on my Facebook story and on my Instagram story. So you can go there to find it. But if you scroll down, there's going to be a YouTube message that Pastor Jensen Franklin does. And he challenges the women to pray. To pray, to pray for three things, to pray for the prodigals, to pray for generation Z and to pray for generation alpha. That is basically anyone that's been born from 1997 to yesterday or today and to pray for the prodigals. I'm challenging you, please go watch this message done by Jensen Franklin. I wrestled with whether I should try to re-preach it and there's no way I can because the, the power that he has in that moment is amazing. And if you go watch that this week and you feel the call to intercessory prayer for those three things, I'm gonna ask you to join me next Sunday, Sunday, June, May 21st, not June, but May 21st at 5 p.m. at the Germantown campus. We're not gonna have any worship. We're not gonna have any fun, cool lights or smoke. It's just gonna be me and whoever women show up, bring your Bible, bring a notebook, bring a pen, and we're going to start to intercede. We're going to start to become Rachel's army. And to understand what that is, you have to go watch Pastor Jensen Franklin's message. But I'm challenging you today, please 
If you're worried about your prodigal, if you have a prodigal, if you know a prodigal, or if you know somebody that's in Generation Z and Generation Alpha, come, women, we have to form an army and we have to start praying and interceding for our kids because the enemy is after them. He's after the prodigals. He's after the church. So join me if you feel called to pick up that mantle of prayer. Next, I would love it if every woman in the house would stand with me today, whether you're at Brookfield or you're at Germantown, if you're a woman from 11 to 111, and if you can, please stand with me. I want to pray over you today. You are a mighty army. You are mighty and you are strong and you are beautiful and you are powerful and God has anointed you and I am thankful for you. Let me pray over you today. God in heaven, I thank you so much. Thank you for making women. You designed us to be a helpmate to you in reaching a lost and dark world. You did not belittle us. No, you instead esteem us, you call us, you deliver us. You have a purpose for each and every one of us. Let us walk in that freedom. Let us walk in your power and operate as your daughters today. What a title, what a position of honor that you have given to us. Help us to be image bearers. Women of all ages who share the promises, plans, and provision of Jesus to our dark world. Thank you. Thank you, Father God, for believing in us as women. Help us to fight against our enemy, Satan, and not one another. Help us to know that we are that who we do this God-centered life with, that who we surround ourselves with matters. Help us to find our faith-filled community that will sharpen us into women who are able to pick up the mantle that you have laid before us and become what we believe. Let us take back what the enemy has stolen from us and take that ash heap and turn it into a beautiful garden that grows for you, that declares victory in the mighty name of Jesus. I boldly ask all of this and the only name that can save, and that's of Jesus Christ. Thank you for women today in this place. Amen and amen. Happy Mother's Day.